Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We were going to talk with Austin Carr, who is a Bloomberg Technology reporter next, uh, and he was going to talk about a story, Silicon Valley is listening to your most intimate <laughs> moments. But then we found out that Austin's fiance's name is Alexa. And so he is the unicorn that has an Alexa and has that horrible dissonance between your your soon-to-be wife's name and, and the device. How do you function? It's difficult. Um, you know, the, I would say that oftentimes it's unclear who I'm talking to, the speaker or my soon-to-be wife, uh, but the speaker often thinks I'm talking to it or her. Uh, but that actually gets to the heart of the story in this week's issue of Bloomberg Business Week. Nice pivot. If you don't mind me <laughs> well pivoting done. there. Uh, in that there's accidental triggers that happen all the time if you have a device like an Amazon Echo or a Google Home or an Apple HomePod or use Siri. Um, and these recordings are submitted to these companies' servers. And from there, what you might not know is they're actually sometimes transcribed by a vast network of human listeners to help improve speech recognition on these services. This is one of the big privacy uh, issues that uh, really we're, we're covering in the story, in addition to the relationship with my fiance. <laughs> yeah. So what are some examples of some of the content, I guess, or conversation that's been picked up and transcribed by these humans? Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the fascinating things, we spoke to dozens of contractors from everywhere from Ireland to India who work on these these programs or have worked on them for Apple and, and Google and Amazon. And, it, and it's really fascinating and also quite alarming. Some of them described instances where they uh, often heard recordings of children uh, sharing personal information like phone numbers or street addresses. They overheard couples engaging in sexual activity. They heard very private information happening in your, your kitchen and bedroom. And I'd say overall, they just felt incredibly uncomfortable doing this type of uh, audio transcription, so much so that they compared it to something out of 1984. Okay, on one hand, I get it. You know, you don't want someone hearing some things that you might say at home or do at home. On the other hand, does anyone care? I mean, in terms of if someone, you know, in another country or across the sea is listening to someone that they don't know do something that is inherent to animals, then why, why does it matter? Well, I think that's the the stance that the tech companies really took when they set up these systems, which is really interesting. Um, they, they basically spent the last couple of years being very heavily scrutinized for having privacy issues and collecting more data. And this is sort of the next level of that data collection. This is voice or audio or sonic surveillance in a lot of ways. Uh, and that audio was uh, being rerouted to, again, these data associates who are transcribing this material. And the big question is not just whether or not that's ethical, but whether or not they properly disclosed it to their customers. Uh, you might not think it was uh, that significant of an issue, or perhaps you don't share that many intimate things if you're talking to these devices. I, I know you mentioned uh, you guys use these devices at your, your houses too, uh, but the, the larger question is whether even customers knew this was happening, and I think that's a really significant privacy issue. So, so what are kind of some of the legal ramifications here? Do I have an expectation to privacy that extends to these devices, and I'm guessing that might be different in different parts of the world. Yeah, I mean, technically, you did agree to opt into these services, uh, or at least were automatically optimated. It, when you you sign up for, let's say, uh, at your Apple iPhone, okay. you know, there's those broad terms and conditions, which again, I'm, I'm sure very few people <laughs> right? read, but somewhere in those, they did disclose that Apple could use the audio that you submit and collect the recordings in order to, quote, you know, improve or enhance Siri's speech recognition. But they didn't explicitly say that humans might be listening to this. I think the assumption that was uh, robot 
bots were doing the vast majority of these uh, you know, requests. And, and that's what tech companies say, that a lot of these requests are handled without human input. But they really should have disclosed that humans uh, were the ones that were doing a lot of this work as well. You know, millions of recordings per year they're transcribing. Um, and so they've updated their terms and conditions to reflect that, uh, which is sort of a major disclaimer now that they hadn't done that before and perhaps should have. So let's talk about what you're going to do about your soon-to-be wife's name. How is that? How are you going to deal with that? You know, I mean, so far we've, uh, I would say Amazon is getting better with <laughs> associate, disassociating. So your fiance is not going to change her name, I guess. One of them will have to, okay, no, but okay. uh, yeah, no, uh, I, we will say there, there is an option for uh, the Amazon uh, Echo to change it to respond to Amazon or Echo. For some reason, we haven't done that. And I would say that sort of captures the broad approach to privacy issues that, that tech companies. <laughs> professional pivoter. I yeah. like professional this. Pivot. But I would say that that's really what a lot of, you know, there was a Pew Research uh, study recently that found that about 60% of uh, uh, users surveyed had very major, you know, serious uh, privacy concerns about these devices. At the same time, about a quarter of Americans have them in their homes. So there is that huge disparity. And and that's exactly, that gets to the heart of it, right? Is that people, if they're worried about it, they do have an option of not buying it and not installing it in their home. So there's sort of a question, when does it become something more? When is it an invasion that goes beyond just, you know, you can vote with your feet or with your money, basically? And and, and to that same extent, you know, what is the threshold for companies to collect this data? Is it, hey, we can collect it so long as we're improving it for our services? Or could one day we use it for targeted advertising? A researcher we talked to just reminded us how much information we disclose in these recordings. If a baby's crying in the background of a recording, they could just, they could... uh, technically refer that infer that you have a family if you ask a lot of questions about football they think you're a fan of the nfl so you can see how these could build behavior profiles uh for you in the future austin carr thank you so much for joining us fascinating story austin's a technology reporter for bloomberg news joining us on our bloomberg interactive broker studio austin's story is featured in the upcoming issue of bloomberg business week magazine you can read it now on the bloomberg and at bloomberg.com full disclosure I am not that great at programming these things. My 10-year-old son programmed my Alexa to call him Lord. And so now I have to hear that all the time. And perhaps the human transcribers. Human transcribers as well. Fed meets today. Most likely it will be boring. That is certainly what they hope, but it does set a tone going into 2020 when it comes to trying to figure out what credit returns will look like. Janelle Woodward joining us now to talk about that. Head of fixed income and senior portfolio manager at BMO Global Asset Management overseeing $260 billion. She's normally based in Miami, but she wanted to see what snow looked like, so she came up here uh, to our uh, interactive broker studios. Janelle, I want to start with excuse me, the outlook for 2020 when it comes to credit, uh, investment grade debt is poised for its best annual return since 2009. How much further can it go? Yeah, up over 14% this year. I think it's somewhat remarkable when we look at the total returns. Um, We are still very constructive on credit, even with valuations where they're at going into 2020. And a lot of this comes back to the positioning of the Fed, accommodation, what we've seen out of earnings, and some of the opportunities that exist within some of the specific quality buckets. It's interesting to hear you're still constructive on investment grade debt. A lot of folks that we talk to are saying, boy, we're so 
far into this economic cycle, you know, might be too late. We might start seeing some concerns about credit quality or something along those lines. What's kind of the, the foundation for your view going to 2020? Sure, a couple different things. I think one of the things is this year there's been a lot of concern about triple Bs in particular. But as we look at the ratio of upgrades versus downgrades in and out of high yield, it's actually five to one. So we've actually seen credit quality moving higher. And um, the other thing is I think earnings surprised flat overall for the year, but fairly resilient considering some of the pressures. Um, and then with the expectation for earnings growth of 10% next year, even if we see that moderate, it should be overall supportive of credit quality. So the emphasis is on investment grade over high yield, you say. And yet spreads are pretty tight. The extra yield that investors earn over benchmark rates is about the lowest since last March in more than a year. Uh, and we're also looking at sort of a questionable outlook in terms of how much further the Fed will cut. What's going to be driving the returns, spread compression or uh, benchmark rates going lower? So I, I think a little bit of both. I think our outlook is that rates are really fairly range bound in here. So it's largely going to come from the carry of credit as well as some additional tightening. I think what gets overlooked when we think about overall what's the what's the option adjusted spread of the index of 100 is really that dispersion that takes place within investment grade. And it's interesting if you move the seven notches from a triple A credit to a high triple B, you pick up less than you move to go from a high triple B to a low triple B credit. And so low triple B credit at 180 double the of the 10-year treasury, there's some interesting opportunities that have been overlooked. For us, though, this is about allocating within and not just to credit quality, and we do acknowledge where we are in the cycle. So, Janelle, um, your title is Global Asset uh, Management, uh, Head of Global Asset Management. Globally, how are you guys thinking about allocation of your capital into 2020? Yeah, I think we are. Um, we we still continue to favor the U.S. in terms of the resilience of the overall economy. Um, in terms of valuations, when we go back to that, there are some oppor interesting opportunities uh, as we move down in the lower quality spectrum, and especially in emerging market debt. Considering our rate outlook going forward, um, we like a flexible approach. We think you shouldn't all be completely in corporates, um, and we, we think that you've got to go, again, allocating within and not just to specific quality buckets. There was a survey that Bloomberg did of global investors that found that the consensus is that emerging market assets will outperform developing market uh, developed market ones next year. Do you agree? So I think part of this is just the carry, where you're starting from. So you're starting from a yield that's significantly higher, and so you have that perpetual income component that supports it. So if risk stays flat, there's still an opportunity there. This is so interesting, Paul. It's sort of this idea that as long as there's nothing major that happens in the macroeconomic backdrop, which seems to be the consensus right now, it's just a carry game. So anything yep. that gives you a dividend or anything that gives yep. you interest uh, is going to be pretty good. Yeah. And that kind of suggests, you know, kind of the mid single <laughs> digit kind of return environment. So let's it is Fed Day. Janelle, let's get your thoughts on what you expect to hear from the Fed and from Chairman Powell today. What is your expectations? So as far as the move today, as far as policy consistent with consensus. We don't expect any change in terms of rates. I think the part of policy they'll be focused on is really the forward guidance. And we'll see that both in the dots as well as the communication. I think what we're looking for is an update in terms of economic projections and also what happens if we look at the floor of the dots currently, it's really where policy is. And so how do those converge over time and how do they still keep the optionality to be able to act in an additional way if required? What do you see so far in terms of 2020 predictions by some of your competitors that you think is totally wrong? 
Um, I think just, uh, well, we, we've seen the recession um, piece come down a lot. Um, I, you know, honestly, I think that there's going to be a, a tremendous recovery in some of the deepest segments of high yield. I think that's one of the pieces of the market that's really surprised. And we actually see it in both emerging market debt and high yield this year. So triple C's returned 5%, investment grade corporates 14, high yield as a whole double digits. And so there's definitely been pockets that have been left out as we've kind of gotten later in the cycle and we've seen this fallout. And so I think this is interesting. Am I hearing that you think that the shale patch will recover, that the energy (laughs) idea is a good one to take that risk? Am I hearing that? We think there are select there are select <laughs> opportunities. You know, energy's been under tremendous pressure this year, and that's definitely contributed to both IG and, and high yield returns. But there are opportunities. Janelle Woodward, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you making the trek up from sunny Miami here to New York. Janelle Woodward is the head of fixed income and senior portfolio manager for BMO Global Asset Management. They have about $260 billion uh, under management joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So people are all looking to 2020 to try to figure out what is the outlook for benchmark rates, but also uh, for business outlook, which has actually deteriorated over the year, despite ongoing confidence among consumers. Joining us now, Frank Sorrentino, Chief Executive Officer of Connect One Bank. Uh, and Frank, I want to start there since you do extend so many loans to businesses and commercial lenders. What has this sentiment been like over the past few months? So, so good morning and thanks for having me again. And yeah, I think, uh, you know, our clients are actually a little, have a little bit of trepidation about, you know, what's going on in the marketplace. And so they have this sense that the economy is doing well, interest rates are low, the environment is good. Um, but there's this just sense, this wall of worry that everyone seems to be climbing today. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure it's, it's, should be that way, but it certainly is impacting decisions going forward about expansion and right. capital, deployment of capital and whatnot. So your customers, your borrowing customers are small and mid-sized businesses in the metro New York area. Um, so are they concerned about big issues like global trade or is it just that maybe the labor market is so tight I can't find people to build my stuff or go in my stores or whatever? So, you know, it's fascinating. I've actually written about this and, and I talk about it a lot. I tell people, stop reading the news, you know, like focus on what's really going on and in your business. And that's the end of the interview. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, no, but, you know, when you start thinking about all, all the, the, all that's in the news, all that you get from Twitter, all that you get, you know, from various uh, sources. On the radio. Um, you know, people start worrying more than I think they need to. And then when they look at their actual environment and where they're functioning, uh, they see a lot of strength. And actually, one of the issues you just raised was uh, was this concept of being able to hire to fill all the positions you have. That is the number one uh, concern we have today is that people can't fill all the positions they have open today. And is it a salary issue? In other words, if they just jack up the prices, they would be able to find the talent? So for a while, I think it was that. And I think we are seeing some wage inflation coming into the marketplace, which would be a good thing. Um, but today, I don't care what you pay. You can't, it's, it's becoming difficult to hire, uh, to hire, uh, to fill positions. And, and I believe this fact is accurate. I think it's, we're at the highest level of people voluntarily leaving jobs. 
So that's a good sign for the economy, but there's a dark side to that. We can't fill all the open positions. So So what are some of the areas of uh, borrowers that are maybe active right now, or maybe even some that are kind of pulling back a little bit? So, you know, I I think for our manufacturers and people that are in service businesses, um, they've got basically a green light ahead of them. There's a lot going on in the economy. There's a lot of efficiencies. Technology is really changing uh, the face of business today in a positive way. And those are good things. And those are creating really great jobs in the economy. Um, you know, in the in the construction and real estate trades, you know, certainly here in the New York metro market, and that's where Connect One Bank is is located. Uh, there's been some there's been some headwinds, whether it's the rent you know the rent regulation that came into into place uh, in New York City, uh, the the length of time it takes to get something approved from a zoning perspective. You know, these things are are dampeners on the economy. We need more housing. We need places for people to live. Uh, there is definitely a shortage of that. Uh, the replacement of new homes in the United States is at near an all-time low. Uh, so there's a lot of pent-up demand for product, but there's a lot of policies that are that are, that are are hindering that. I'm so. so glad that Frank Sorrentino is here today because we can talk about the intersection of these theoretical uh, aspects of the market, like the yield curve, and talk about the tangibles of how that actually affects the, the bottom line. When you're extending loans to these businesses, to the commercial real estate developers and lenders, I'm just trying to understand your profit margins and how much uh, you know a change in the yield curve affects that. What's that been like? So for us, it's been a challenge, uh, certainly for the last year or two. Uh, the yield curve has definitely tightened. It's gotten close to inverted, if not slightly inverted. Um, low interest rates on the long end actually are good for the economy, right? We, we see that um, people are investing in capital intensive businesses, whether that's real estate or others, because of low interest rates. So you got to hand it to the Fed. They've almost, in my opinion, flawlessly managed the economy over the last number of years. Um, I think they might have gotten a little ahead of themselves with short-term rates uh, earlier in the year where they were raising maybe a little bit too quickly. And uh, But again, let's hand it to them. They reversed course and uh, have brought rates probably about where they should be. And we're seeing a neutral stance today. And I think everyone expects we're going to see a neutral stance going forward from here for the foreseeable future. Frank, we're you know 10 plus years into this economic cycle. And I, I know some uh, investors, uh, when they look at the credit markets, have a little concern about credit quality. And when you look at your portfolio, how's the credit quality right now trending? So when you look across, <clears throat> excuse me, the entire industry, you know, we, we've probably never seen a better stretch of time relative to credit quality for all financial institutions. Uh, as I look out, I, I don't see a whole lot that's going to change that uh, short term. Again, interest rates are low. Liquidity is there. People can refinance. Um, jobs are strong and getting stronger. Wages are on the increase. So really, you know, most of the factors that sort of put negative pressure uh, on credit quality just aren't there right now. So where are you looking to expand? <laughs> well, Connect One, um, since its inception, has been pretty much a New York metro market bank. Um, you know, parts of nor northern New Jersey, all around New York City. We believe this is the greatest market in the country, and this is exactly where we want to be. But as far as uh, size and, and scale, is there an advantage to being uh, mid-sized or smaller, or, or do you see an advantage of getting bigger? So I would tell you today that size 
in my opinion, does matter. I, I know that's cliche, but um, today the, the, the biggest thing, and, th- and this is not just for banking, this is probably for all businesses, technology is no longer something that's a wow thing anymore. It is part of what your business needs to be. And the more money you can invest in technology, the more efficient you can get, I think the better you can be in your in whatever your business is. And that holds true for Connect One Bank. And so size and allows that's us one to of the, spend more of our revenue on technology. Yeah, and that's kind of one of the... <clears throat> things we hear about quickly when we see when we, whenever we hear a bank buying another bank they say we got to get bigger we got to get scale because this technology spend is so great so how does a small smaller bank deal with that technology investment requirement we have to get bigger okay. uh, as you you know as i'm sure you've seen we we uh, completed an acquisition uh, in january of 2019 we're about to close on one uh, in january of 2020 uh, so we've grown uh, probably between those two, 35 or 40% in size. And part of that rationale is taking out costs and, re- and not taking out costs to save money, but taking out costs to reinvest, reinvest it in, in better technology, more efficient ways of doing business. Frank Sarantino, thank you so much for joining us. Frank is the Chief Executive Officer of Connect One Bank, symbol on the NASDAQ, CNOB, based in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey, but joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. little preview. We welcome our next guest, Marvin Lowe. Marvin is a senior global macro strategist for State Street, that little firm up in Boston. Marvin, thanks so much for joining us. I think the consensus here is for a relatively benign uh, Fed uh, decision and uh, press conference today. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think I think that um, the Fed has pretty clearly signaled that um, you know they've done what they wanted to do this year. Uh, the markets are being cooperative. Uh, you know, we've got inflation that's firming, if anything, from today's data. So I, I think they're happy to start the holiday season a little bit earlier and and, and kind of make this a, a quiet meeting. It will be boring, right? You know what? Um, I think from the rate uh, and monetary policy perspective. Um, the consensus is, is, is pretty accurate. There's really no reason for them to signal um, that they're ready to either cut or raise at this point. But, you know, there's still the funding issues that are out there. Um, and looking a little further, which, you know, sometimes the market doesn't, uh, whether or not they still think, um, you know, hikes are going to be possible and whether or not if we look longer term, if you will, that um, the terminal rate is still going to be as high as um, the last set of dots indicated. So talking about Boring. Um, I mean, yes, we're going to get some interesting things, but 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 uh, you know, for the for the most part, it's going to be status quo. Probably that's what everyone's expecting. Yeah, yeah. And um, going into twenty twenty, it seems like increasingly the forecasts that we're hearing are pretty humdrum too. Nothing's going to really change in the macro backdrop. Things will be fine, good enough, maybe decelerating, and returns will be lower than they were this year, but not terrible, not amazing. Do you agree? You know what? It's hard to argue with that at this point. Um, You know, I do think that uh, there still is risk that um, economic activity, um, you know, really shows its age. And, you know, certainly the risk is still to the downside. But in terms of what we're seeing now and how the Fed's going to position it uh, later this afternoon, I think they're just going to grab a hold of that and, you know, say they're ready. Um, You know, we've got more of an asymmetric curve where, uh, you know, cuts are more likely and everyone will, you know, from a risk taking perspective, be somewhat happy with that. Um, Marvin, you mentioned they might make some commentary about the uh, short-term repo funding market. What do you expect they could say or should say? You know what? Um, 
it, it, it's certainly a point of um, contention, certainly uh, m- maybe a degree of confusion in terms of just how stressed uh, year-end and really more important uh, beyond year-end, um, the whole uh, short-end funding market is beyond that. I don't think the Fed really fully appreciates um, what maybe some of the more tail risk type discussions are out there. So I think they'll say that they are on top of the situation, that the operations that they have will continue to run um, as we kind of get through year end. Um, and once again, they stand ready at the switch. I think if um, you believe that there are you know some more longer term issues, we're going to need regulation, we're going to need things like standing repo, and we actually might need um, a, an acceleration of their bond buying to kind of get us out of some of these funding issues. But um, I don't think that they want to show that degree of fear in a couple hours. And do you think that that uh, type of scenario where there is some sort of funding pressure could materialize in a way that affects risk markets going into your end? Um, it's not my base case because I really haven't seen anything that appears that stressed at the moment. But certainly what we learned in September it, is that it can come around fairly quickly. Um, and, you know, just kind of thinking back, you know, 10 years ago, if you will, um, how quickly or 10 plus years ago, how quickly um, it can deteriorate risk markets. It, it certainly is a risk there, particularly given um, how rich a lot of asset values are at the, at the moment. So, Marvin, when I think State Street, I think big global macro kind of uh, house up there in Boston. What is your view as you think about globally in terms of allocation of capital uh, for 2020? So, um, you know, one, one of the, the trends that we've seen over the course of the year is just how um, high cash levels have gotten. So, um, you know, uh, the, the discussion around uh, the rally, if you will, whether it's been on the credit side of things or equity side of things uh, being somewhat underowned. The flip side of that is that cash levels are pretty high. So, you know, we're, we are looking for um, if the risk environment remains supportive, those cash levels potentially moving off the sidelines, and it winds up being, um, you know, a slightly greater allocation towards the fixed income and the um, equity component, which has come down since the beginning of the year. Do you, do you really think that uh, coming off the sidelines is an accurate way to, to talk about it? I've heard so much controversy about the idea of cash on the sidelines, with some people saying that that's a fiction and that, uh, you know, that it's not just held in buckets of cash, that it's held in maybe treasuries or, you know, fixed income, which have gotten, which has gotten so much uh, in, by way of inflows this year. What's your view on that? Yeah, so, so you know, um, I have a fairly narrow uh, definition of cash. It certainly is uh, more on the money market side of things and kind of the shape of the curve and kind of, um, you know, how flat the, um, the short end part of the curve, I think, kind of plays into this repo discussion and plays into the fact that returns aren't that bad in the bill market. Um, it does require some steepening of kind of that short end of the curve, I think, to pull um, money off the sidelines. You know, cash is, is, is a decent asset class, but, you know, as we kind of just look at where returns are going to be going forward, I think that you know people do need to consider uh, what the appropriate degree of risk is um, in order to generate those returns that they need to retire and everything else that goes along with it. This is actually really interesting. In other words, the flatter the curve, the more, quote, cash there will be on the sidelines because you don't get anything for, for taking that extra risk. Is that basically the idea? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, whether it's duration risk or, um, you know, the the risk in the market, um, you know, kind of looking at the short end uh, of the curve. Again, whether it's money market, you know, again, kind of uh, playing into that repo discussion. Um, Yeah, you know, uh, certainly uh, keeping it short, you're not giving up that much. So, Marvin, just quickly, do I take on more risk in 2020? I've had a pretty good year in 2019. Do I go emerging markets, leverage loans, things like that? 
Um, I, I, I do like the emerging markets. Um, you know, I think that uh, what we've seen is uh, the lack of FX volatility, which kind of supports the emerging markets. Um, the inflation kind of profile around the EM has certainly changed in terms of not being that um, uh, demonstrative to, to some of your returns. Uh, so, so the EM complex is something that I like. Leveraged loans, um, and, and I've spoken to Lisa about this, uh, you know, certainly a lot, is a, a little bit more of a challenge, particularly given covenants, uh, particularly given how aggressive some of um, those loans have become. Um, that, that I, I say, a bit more on the sidelines. Marvin Lowe, thank you so much for being with us. Marvin Lowe is global macro strategist at State Street, and uh, he joins a number of uh, strategists actually talking about leveraged loans next year. UBS's Matthew Mish coming yep. out this morning and saying that he expects uh, a decline of 1% to 2% next year for leveraged loans. Yeah, you think about you know ten plus years into this economic cycle, you think start thinking about credit quality, and if you're going to see credit issues, that'll be certainly one of the markets uh, where you may see it first. Yeah, although you have seen such a, an underperformance already yep. among certain loans, you have to wonder uh, whether perhaps that's already reached a bottom. Uh, we shall see. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz 1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.